I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Pregnant women are said to be eating for two or sometimes three. How can they maximize the health benefits of their diet? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. A large study has shown that women following a Mediterranean diet during pregnancy are less likely to encounter complications. We'll talk with one of the researchers to find out what the diet entails. It's not just what you eat, but how you eat that matters. Why should pregnant women embrace mindful eating? Can the rest of us benefit from this approach? What would it take for you to change the way you eat? Coming up on the People's Pharmacy, mindfulness and a Mediterranean diet while eating for two. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. To get the most robust response from an immunization, it'd be smart to get a good night's sleep. A meta-analysis published in Current Biology compared responses to influenza and hepatitis vaccinations. Men who slept more than seven hours had a significantly stronger immune response than those who slept less than six. In analyzing seven studies with information on sleep duration and immune response, the researchers found a clear link between objectively measured sleep and antibody response. In adults between 18 and 60, people sleeping less than six hours had significantly lower antibodies. This reduction was about equivalent to what one would see maybe two months after a vaccination due to waning antibodies. Muscle pain associated with statin-type cholesterol-lowering drugs has been controversial for years. Some research suggests that this side effect is relatively common, while other studies report that it's no more likely than with placebo. A statin alternative called bempedoic acid can lower LDL cholesterol in patients who cannot tolerate statins. The FDA approved the drug in 2020 under the brand name Nexlatol. Now, researchers report the results of a study of 14,000 people who were statin intolerant. The randomized controlled trial lasted more than three years. People taking Nexlatol daily were 23% less likely to have a heart attack than those taking placebo pills. The absolute risk for a heart attack was 3.7% in the bempedoic acid group compared to 4.8% in the placebo group. That's a benefit, but when it comes to mortality, the results were less promising. The authors of this impressive study report that, quote, bempedoic acid had no significant effects on fatal or non-fatal stroke, death from cardiovascular causes, and death from any cause. Patients on Nexlatol had higher levels of uric acid in their urine and were more likely to develop gout or gallstones than those on placebo. Millions of people globally are suffering from depression or anxiety. An overview of systematic reviews of more than a 1,000 randomized controlled trials has found that regular physical activity can significantly reduce that distress. The studies demonstrated that around 150 minutes of physical activity each week helped people with depression or anxiety more than usual care. 
When people exercised at higher intensity, they got greater improvement in their psychological state. All types of exercise were helpful, from aerobic to resistance, even including yoga. According to the authors, physical activity should be a mainstay approach in the management of depression, anxiety, and psychological distress. A 15-year study of men with prostate cancer compared so-called watchful waiting to radical prostatectomy or radiation treatment. There were more than 1,600 British men enrolled in the trial. The authors concluded that, quote, after 15 years of follow-up, prostate cancer's specific mortality was low, regardless of the treatment assigned. Thus, the choice of therapy involves weighing trade-offs between benefits and harms associated with treatments for localized prostate cancer. More aggressive treatment did reduce the spread of the disease, but it did not change survival statistics. Some commentators have concluded that men with a new diagnosis of prostate cancer could delay surgery or radiation therapy and instead participate in active surveillance. Others, however, point out that some of the strategies employed in this long-running trial are no longer the norm. Modern testing, such as MRI prostate imaging, targeted biopsies, and whole-body scans have revolutionized diagnosis. There are also newer treatments that are more effective and less invasive. The lead author of the study, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, told CNN that, quote, the good news is that if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, don't panic and take your time to make a decision. Most people don't imagine frail elderly people doing yoga, but a meta-analysis indicates that we should. A systematic review of 33 randomized controlled trials found that older adults have stronger legs and walk better after practicing yoga. Results on better balance, which could help reduce falls among frail elders, were less clear. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Pregnancy is a unique time of life in which a woman has to eat for two. We often hear about cravings for unusual combinations like pickles and ice cream. What are the best foods during pregnancy? How much does food choice matter? What about the rest of us? Could following a diet full of vegetables and fruits and low on meats and sweets be beneficial for everyone? Research now shows that high blood pressure during pregnancy can have devastating consequences. Not only can it put the mother's life at risk during pregnancy, she may be at higher risk for cardiovascular complications later in life. To learn more about the impact of diet on pregnancy, we turn to Dr. Natalie Bello. She's an associate professor of cardiology and director of hypertension research in the Schmidt Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai. Her research focuses on better understanding the relationship between hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and cardiovascular risk. And her latest study found an association between the Mediterranean diet and pregnancy outcomes. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Natalie Bello. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk to you today. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, so are we. Dr. Bello, we were very interested to uh, see in JAMA Network Open not too long ago, a study that you did with a number of your colleagues on the Mediterranean diet and pregnancy outcomes. Can you 
outline that study for us? Sure. It was a really exciting work, and I'm I'm happy to hear that you found it interesting. So we um, looked at data from an ongoing study that's been founded uh, funded by the National Institutes of Health called the Nulla Paris Pregnancy Outcome Study, or New Mom to Be, we call it for short, uh, which is a really nice racially ethnic ethnically diverse cohort of women who were enrolled at the time of their first pregnancy, and we looked at almost 8,000 women in this cohort. And we had information about self-reported diets and the foods that they had eaten. We asked them to recall for the three months prior to that pregnancy, um, different types of food. So it wasn't necessarily, do you follow a certain diet, but it was asking about how many servings of this type of fruit or vegetable or nut or meat do you eat on a typical day? And we have, um, there's a very well established way of scoring that diet quiz essentially to see how compatible it is with certain types of diet. And, you know, I'm very interested in the Mediterranean diet. And we found that people who were reported eating foods consistent with a Mediterranean type diet around the time of conception and in early pregnancy did have a lower risk of what we call adverse pregnancy outcomes, in particular, a lower risk of preeclampsia and gestational diabetes compared to individuals who were less compliant with that type of diet. Now, you have just introduced the idea of a couple of adverse pregnancy outcomes, and I think we need to define them. So would you tell us, please, what is preeclampsia? Absolutely. So preeclampsia is sort of a combination of several things. It involves, first and foremost, a diagnosis of hypertension or high blood pressure. Traditionally, it was the combination of high blood pressure and protein in the urine that made the diagnosis of preeclampsia. But we've come around to realize that sometimes people don't actually meet that threshold of protein in the urine. And so they may have other signs of organ damage as a result of the high blood pressure, including neurological symptoms like visual changes. Some people have abnormalities in their blood work showing liver uh, dysfunction or blood clotting dysfunction. So it's kind of a broad combination of things recently. Dr. Bellow, why? Why do so many pregnant women end up with this condition called preeclampsia, which I imagine is not good for them and probably not good for the baby? Yeah, that I mean, that is the magical question. Why, why, why? We don't have a great answer as to why every single person gets it. We do know there are certain risk factors that can put you at a higher risk, um, including both low age at the time of first pregnancy. So very young teenagers have a high risk of preeclampsia, as well as older age, greater than 35 at the time of first pregnancy. But other common metabolic conditions, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension that predated your pregnancy can put you at higher risk for preeclampsia, obesity, certain connective tissue disorders, um, and autoimmune disorders can put you at a higher risk. And we, you're absolutely correct. We're seeing more and more preeclampsia lately. And we think it's a combination of things in this country. One, we think it is unfortunately tied to the rising body mass index of individuals and, you know, sort of the physical inactivity we see. 
some of it may be also related to people delaying pregnancy until older age. Um, another risk factor uh, is the use of assisted reproductive technologies as well. And so we do see higher risk in those individuals. So it can be compounded in some folks. It, it, it is unfortunate. And you're absolutely right also that there are risks for both mother and baby or babies. Um, babies sometimes need to be delivered early to treat preeclampsia. That is really the only good treatment we have. And so sometimes they're quite premature, may need to be in the NICU. Um, moms, in the worst case scenario, preeclampsia pre can become eclampsia if it was not recognized and treated expeditiously, which is actually the development of seizures, which could lead to death. So this is not a good situation. And anything that you can do as a physician to prevent preeclampsia, that high blood pressure problem is obviously beneficial. And so why do you think first that the Mediterranean diet might be beneficial and second, how good was it? Great question. And we have tried many other interventions, including dietary supplements uh, to prevent preeclampsia. There is some benefit to the use of low-dose aspirin for certain individuals at moderate or high risk for preeclampsia, reducing preeclampsia risk. To me, we we are trying to understand the mechanisms that drive preeclampsia. And I think some of it is an increase in inflammation. Some of it we know is due to uh, what we call antivascular effects. So the placenta normally, as an individual gets closer and closer to the time of the delivery, it makes sense. This placenta is a very vascular organ that has developed and it's connected to the uterus through all these tiny little blood vessels that form. And in order to deliver a baby and the placenta without bleeding out and dying, nature has evolved for us to detach over time as it gets closer to the time of delivery so that those little blood vessels sort of sever themselves. And we think some of preeclampsia in some individuals is related to too much of the protein that blocks those um, blood vessels and stops them from bleeding out and sort of creates a constricted different physiology of the blood vessels. So I think it's a combination of things that leads to preeclampsia. And perhaps the Mediterranean diet works through, we know that, you know, in cardiovascular disease and overall health, the Mediterranean diet is known to be anti-inflammatory. It's known to have favorable benefits on people's lipid profiles. Um, and so perhaps that is one mechanism through which it was associated with a lower risk of preeclampsia. We actually found that individuals who had um, a higher compliance with this Mediterranean diet score had a 28% lower risk for preeclampsia and a 38% lower risk of gestational diabetes, another really important adverse pregnancy outcome. And we haven't talked about that yet. Perhaps you could briefly describe that. Sure. So in the course of pregnancy, there are many physiologic changes that happen. And in certain individuals, they actually develop what is a form of diabetes called gestational diabetes, where their insulin resistance goes up. Uh, the glucose levels also get higher than we would like. And in the best case scenarios, it resolves at the end of pregnancy, though we do know it's, it's a, also a risk factor for developing diabetes in the future. 
just like preeclampsia, gestational diabetes also has risks for mom and baby. Um, and one of the risks is actually that the babies get quite large if it's not recognized and treated. Um, and so that can cause issues during the birthing process as well. If the, if the baby is too big, sometimes there needs to be a C-section. And I, I'm not an OBGYN, so <laughs> right. um, you know, <laughs> I stick to the heart and the, the blood vessels. But um, you know, certainly we see these and we know that gestational diabetes puts you at risk for a higher risk of heart disease and diabetes in the future as well. So that's why it's of interest to us and you know, try, trying to keep people healthy. And so they don't need a cardiologist. You mentioned that this study is uh, includes a, a lot of participants that have ethnic diversity. Did you find any differences among the uh, various groups, or did everyone benefit from following this diet that was high in fruits and vegetables? That's a great question. We actually found everyone, regardless of the race or ethnicity that was self-reported, found equal benefits. The one group that we did find had a greater benefit was when we looked at individuals with that older maternal age, which was defined as 35 years or older, there does seem to be that they had an even greater benefit from higher compliance with a Mediterranean diet than individuals below. Not that the ones below age 35 didn't benefit, but again, speaking to a higher risk group, it was encouraging to see that they actually had a greater benefit. You're listening to Dr. Natalie Bello. She's an associate professor of cardiology and director of hypertension research in the Smith Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai. Her research focuses on better understanding the relationship between hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and cardiovascular risk, and her latest study found an association between the Mediterranean diet and pregnancy outcomes. After the break, we'll clarify what Dr. Bello means by a Mediterranean diet. One hallmark of the Mediterranean diet is using olive oil as the primary fat. What impact could that have on pregnancy? Do complications of pregnancy affect women's health later in life? Women aren't the only ones who may get high blood pressure. A Mediterranean diet might help men, too. Dr. Bello will tell you why researchers think the Mediterranean diet is so good for all of us. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. March is National Nutrition Month. How can Cocovia be part of your nutrition routine? More information at cocovia.com. 
The People's Pharmacy is also supported by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. We have heard a lot about the benefits of the Mediterranean diet for years. It's been shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and even dementia. But what the heck is a Mediterranean diet anyway? There are 22 countries that border the Mediterranean Sea, from Albania and Algeria to Spain and Syria. Which diet are we talking about? And how does it impact pregnancy? We're talking with Dr. Natalie Bello, Associate Professor of Cardiology and Director of Hypertension Research in the Smith Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai. Her research focuses on better understanding the relationship between hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and cardiovascular risk. Her latest study found an association between the Mediterranean diet and pregnancy outcomes. Dr. Bello, we hear so much these days about the Mediterranean diet, and I always think to myself, well, wait a minute, the Mediterranean is really big, and there are lots of countries that are on the Mediterranean. So, uh, you know, there's Italy, and there's Greece, and we could go down all of them. And there's France, and Spain, and Tunisia, and Israel, and Lebanon, lots, lots of countries. and, And these countries have different cuisines and different different tastes and different ways of preparing food. So what the heck do we mean when we say the Mediterranean diet? That is a great question. And I do think, you know, for this, it was not necessarily a specific Mediterranean diet. But when we think about the Mediterranean diet, to me, the one real hallmark is olive oil. And I think that that's something that almost every one of those countries that you just mentioned has in common in their food. And the type of fats are healthy fats in olive oil compared to some of the oils that we tend to use here, which are more corn oils, canola oils, have a less favorable balance of unsaturated and saturated fats. And so to me, a Mediterranean diet pattern really involves high in fruits and vegetables, having lots of whole grains and beans, as well as nuts and seeds. And we think about walnuts are a very good nut to eat. Almonds are a very good nut to eat, um, part of the Mediterranean type diet. I would say be cautious though, because nuts are delicious, but in addition to being high in good fats, they also can be a little caloric. So you don't want to necessarily eat a huge bag of these nuts, but um, you know, a small servings worth is very beneficial. The other thing is when we think about protein choices, Mediterranean diets include fish and really light meat chicken, very little to no red meat. And when again, when you think of those countries you mentioned, that's another thing they have in common. They tend to be very mountainous. Um, there's not a lot of cattle being farmed there, there, but they do have access to the Mediterranean Sea and lots of access to fresh fish. Um, I think it's important to think about the fish choices in pregnancy, though, because we do know some forms of seafood can have very high mercury content, and we do want to be cognizant of that and you know talk to a nutritionist about the types of fishes and the quantities of fishes if you're 
are pregnant or thinking about getting pregnant. Dr. Bello, I'm I'm smiling about the idea of good fats and in particular olive oil because I remember several decades ago many of your cardiology colleagues were kind of down on olive oil and it was like you know margarine is good and oh. corn oil and corn oil is is excellent now and, we are talking several decades yes, we are we are <laughs> we're turning back the clock and and we've done a kind of 180 we've we've changed our attitudes about fat because olive oil monounsaturated but it also has some saturated fat as well but it does seem to be anti-inflammatory and i'm fascinated that you said well the fats that you consume may be really important during pregnancy can you elaborate a little more on that Sure. I, I mean, I think you sort of hit the nail on the head. We do now have more evidence to really give us a, an understanding that oils that are high in monounsaturated fatty acids are more beneficial. There have been large randomized trials studying this in non-pregnant populations. And when you think about pregnancy, it's sort of the ultimate test. You're creating a new life out of nothing. And, you know, Fats are the building blocks of many of our cells. They are involved in cell membrane formation, brain and neuron formation. I mean, it's really essential. And so I think if you can start with the finest building blocks to create someone, it sort of makes sense that there might be a benefit throughout the body. And we don't have any information about the offspring in this study, but I'd be super interested in but, you know, we're hoping to have a, a offshoot study to look at the children. Hopefully it will be funded. But it would be really interesting to see what are the downstream effects on the, the greater family unit for individuals who do consume more of a Mediterranean diet. Well, that will be interesting. And as you pointed out earlier, and as we introduced you, you are actually a cardiologist. So your interest primarily <laughs> is cardiovascular health. I, That's correct. <laughs> absolutely. And we have occasionally uh, bemoaned the fact that uh, women's cardiovascular health isn't always given the same attention as men's cardiovascular health. Can you tell us how this interest in adverse pregnancy events affects women's cardiovascular health later? Yeah, that's a great question. And actually, part of how I got into this as a cardiologist was through friends experiencing adverse pregnancy outcomes and them coming to me and saying, hey, what, what does this mean for me and my heart health? And I said, oh, that's a great question. We didn't, we didn't learn about that when I was a fellow, when I was training in cardiology. And so I sort of took a deeper dive myself and realized there wasn't a lot there. There was a big evidence gap. And that sort of motivated me and my career over the last 15 or 20 years to figure out what are these associations and help to untangle some of this. So we now know that individuals who experience an adverse pregnancy outcome have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease, even if we take into account things like their age and their cardiovascular risk factors. There seems to be something about that event in particular that adds incremental risk. 
And these individuals have their diseases earlier than individuals who do not have an adverse pregnancy outcome. And sometimes they can be even more severe if they've had multiple pregnancies with complications. So I I think we need to do more and figure out what we can do to really modify that risk, hopefully to prevent the adverse pregnancy outcomes in the first place. But if we can't, first off, we need to educate people. When you have a baby, make sure you understand if there were any complications. And the next time you see a healthcare provider, let them know, hey, not only do I have a history of you know high blood pressure, but actually when I was pregnant, I had preeclampsia and my baby was born premature and small. And I'd like you to make sure that you take that into account when you're thinking about my heart health. Dr. Bello, I know we've been focusing on women, in particular pregnant women, but you are also director of the Hypertension Research Program in the Schmidt Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai. And so I'd like to ask you about hypertension, not just in women, but in men and cardiovascular health for everyone because the Mediterranean diet has shown to be beneficial in a lot of situations, uh, reducing the risk not just of heart disease, but perhaps even dementia and diabetes. And so could you talk a little bit more about the benefits of the Mediterranean diet across lots of different people? Sure. Um, You know, and I do tend to suggest this type of diet to all of my patients and, you know, are happy to let them get help from nutritionists as well, because I do not think that I have the answers for everybody. But we learned, especially from a a study called PrediMed about, I don't know how many years ago now, but the, um, they followed seven, 8,000 men and women in Spain who had a high risk of cardiovascular disease for about five years and found that those people who ate uh, the Mediterranean diet that had supplemental olive oil or nuts had a 30% lower risk of heart events at the end of the study compared to people in the control group. So even in people who were already maybe following a bit of a Mediterranean diet benefited more from more uh, compliance with a, a more structured Mediterranean diet. So I think it's a great start to just sort of, the other thing I like about the Mediterranean diet is that it's easy to give advice to folks. You know, sometimes these diets that have all these rigorous things you need to do are really challenging. And, you know, I like to tell people, just think about what you eat and make, start to make small changes eat less prepared food, eat more fruits and vegetables. Well, you know what fascinated me about the PrediMed study? It was, as you pointed out, these were people who already were following (laughs) a Mediterranean-type diet for the most part. And then they took in what seemed to me to be an extraordinary (laughs) amount of olive oil. Quite a bit more than we usually get. The average American would be shocked at how much they were consuming because they were being given this olive oil for free. This was part of the study. Correct. And the nuts, it's like a handful of nuts every day. And, And I'm thinking, wow, 30, 40 years ago, cardiologists would have looked with a great deal of of horror on what that diet was like. 40 years ago, they would have been shocked, no? Right. Yeah. And and the results were about as good, if not better, than some of our best medications that are supposed to prevent heart disease. 
I won't mention the statin word. Oops, there I went ahead and did it. But, you know, the idea that our lifestyle could have such a profound yeah. impact on our cardiovascular health, I think that comes as a bit of a shock to some people. Yeah, and I think that that's part of our job as physicians is to teach our patients, you know, and I, I think having a good therapeutic relationship with my patients involves discussing all the ways to lower their risk. And for me, the building blocks are always we start with diet and exercise. And we know 80% of cardiovascular disease is preventable with risk factor modification. And we can make tremendous reductions in things like blood pressure and cholesterol by making healthy changes in our lifestyles. I mean, if you were to look in my house, my freezer has walnuts. That's that's my snack. You know, I don't snack on cookies or I'm not saying never, but you know, <laughs> if I if given the choice, I try to make those healthy options because I'd like to stay healthy and not need medications for blood pressure or cholesterol. And um, and so I try to teach my patients the same. Well, we've been talking about the new mom to be study that uh, you and your colleagues wrote up, but you also recently wrote an editorial, a comment on a Swedish study that connected the dots between women's adverse events in pregnancy and their later cardiovascular health. Can you just summarize that for us, please? Sure. Yes, this was a really exciting study that just came out of Sweden, actually, where they have the ability to track individuals and their their pregnancies and then follow them over the long term. This in particular involved taking a cohort of Swedish women who had a pregnancy at least one time, some of whom had adverse pregnancy out outcomes, some of whom didn't. And they had a CAT scan of their coronary arteries. And the authors found that in those individuals who had adverse pregnancy outcomes, in particular preeclampsia and gestational hypertension, they had a higher prevalence of coronary artery disease, which by which we mean some abnormalities of the blood vessels in the heart, not necessarily enough to have caused a heart attack, but enough and more than individuals without the pregnancy complications to really sort of provide more evidence for us that maybe when we are taking into account and, and calculating individuals' risk of heart disease, we should be thinking about preeclampsia in a more formal way and adding that to our risk calculators. Calculators. We've tried in the past to do that and see if it would impact risks prediction and who should have more aggressive risk factor modification and it's never really panned out. And it may be because they've always been clustered together in as any adverse pregnancy outcome. And there may be something in particular about preeclampsia, whether it is that inflammatory insult or the antivascular insult that causes lasting damage to the coronaries um, that is associated with these higher risks of events that we need to think about preeclampsia in particular differently. I think the you know, it was at, mentioned earlier that women's heart disease sometimes um, has taken the back seat in in the past, and we haven't gotten enough information. I think one of the real tragedies to me is that we have all of this data from other trials over the years, other cohorts of over the years, and in the vast majority of cases, no one thought to take a pregnancy history. So we can't go back and figure out if we, you know, maybe certain classes of medications would be more effective in individuals who'd had preeclampsia. We just don't have the data and it, it's such a shame. And I, 
I actually wish that the FDA and other regulatory agencies would insist that in drug trials going forward, we take a reproductive history from everybody in the trial so that we can tease out some of these risk factors. Dr. Bello, returning to the Mediterranean diet, you've very nicely outlined for us what the foundations of it are. Why is it so good for all of us? That's a, a deep question. I, you know, I'm not sure if it's maybe closer to what our bodies evolved to eat. You know, it doesn't really contain refined foods. It doesn't have high quantities of protein. And perhaps that's just, you know, we get a better, more durable release of glucose. Our insulin's more stable. It keeps us more metabolically healthy, prevents weight gain prevents diabetes, is anti-inflammatory. And, you know, this is just my personal thought that that might be what it is. I I think even without knowing the mechanisms of how it works, I find it compelling enough to try to follow it in my daily life. And I think it's both feasible and affordable for the vast majority of people in this country as well. And so to me, as I said, it's the the diet of choice for my patients and my friends and family as well. Dr. Natalie Bello, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. You've been listening to Dr. Natalie Bello. She's an associate professor of cardiology and director of hypertension research in the Smith Heart Institute at Cedars-Sinai. Her research focuses on better understanding the relationship between hypertensive disorders of pregnancy and cardiovascular risk. Her latest study found an association between the Mediterranean diet and pregnancy outcomes. After the break, Dr. Alyssa Eppel will discuss her research on mindful eating during pregnancy. What does her research show about the long-term effects of a mindful approach to diet during that time? might have an impact on the health of both mothers and children. What should pregnant women focus on to get the very best nutrition? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of the most proven and concentrated flavanol extract in the market today, CocoPro Coco Extract. March is National Nutrition Month. Have you heard the recent prominent news around the benefits of flavanols? The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics issued a first-of-its-kind recommendation on flavanols a daily intake of 400 to 600 milligrams of flavanols from a variety of foods and drinks, such as tea, apples, berries, and cocoa, to support heart health. You can achieve the guideline through diet, but consider how a cocoa flavanol supplement like Cocovia can help fill the gaps during your busiest days. Get 15% off your Cocovia order from March 13th through April 1st using the discount code NNM15POD at Cocovia.com. That discount code again, NNM15POD 
at cocovia.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Cocovia Dietary Supplements. March is National Nutrition Month. How can Cocovia be a part of your nutrition routine? More information at cocovia.com. The People's Pharmacy is also supported by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today, we're talking about the importance of nutrition during pregnancy. We've just heard from cardiologist Natalie Bello that following a Mediterranean diet can protect against adverse outcomes. Does mindfulness also make a difference? Our guest is Dr. Alyssa Apple. She's a professor and vice chair in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research aims to elucidate mechanisms of healthy aging and to apply this basic science to scalable interventions to reach vulnerable populations. She's the director of the Aging, Metabolism, and Emotions Center. Her latest book is The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Alyssa Eppel. Thank you so much, Terry and Joe. It's always wonderful to talk with you. It really is. We enjoy talking with you so much. We have just been talking with Dr. Natalie Bello about her research on the Mediterranean diet during pregnancy. You have done a number of studies on improving nutrition and mindful eating during pregnancy. Can you tell us why nutrition? Yes, and I'm so excited about Dr. Bellow's study. During pregnancy, we're so sensitive to diet and we're sensitive to cravings and speed of eating and all of those mixed together to either increase our risk of diabetes and cardiovascular disease and poor health for the baby, or they can create more robust health and resilience for a healthy pregnancy. So we've been focusing on both improving nutrition during pregnancy and mindful eating, which means that women are paying attention to what they're eating how much they're eating, and really enjoying and savoring the nutrition during pregnancy. I've always been fascinated with the cravings issue. I, 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 I know that you know everybody experiences cravings at one time or another, especially when they're under stress. But we often hear a lot about how women, when they're pregnant, want Pickles, for example, or strange combinations. Uh, a, I'm curious why you think that is, and then B, how to compensate, how to perhaps avoid certain foods that might be problematic and seek those that are especially helpful. Cravings are incredibly important for our understanding of nutrition. Stress. It, 
really triggers our cravings. And that is not typically for vegetables or carrots, but more for sweets, for simple carbs, because they are so calming, because there's a feedback loop that when we have a lot of comforting food, high fat, high sugar, sometimes high salt, that that leads to this immediate calming or benefit. But that doesn't last long. And then we end up feeling bad. We call it this kind of anhedonic withdrawal from the comfort food that makes us just crave more. So we get on this cycle of more compulsive eating. I have been studying how stress affects eating for many decades. And reward, the drive to eat is really the key factor. Stress triggers the cravings and the cravings keep us eating things that we don't intend to, that aren't good for our health. So during pregnancy, this is of course, especially important because Joe, as you pointed out, cravings can be strong. And so we want to tilt our intentions and our ability to make choices and strengthen those so that we're creating a really healthy, nutritious environment for both the mom's health and the baby's health. How do we do that? Mindful eating skills are really easy to implement. We need reminders. We really forget to try these out at the right time. The right time is right before we eat. So we teach people to do these mindful check-ins and they start with slow breathing and just the turning on our awareness and asking, how hungry am I right now on a one through 10 scale? How much do I feel different emotions? And really separating out emotions, particularly boredom or negative emotions from hunger. So that takes a little bit of inquiry. And then we can make wiser choices about our portion sizes and our food choices. So the mindful check-in is one piece of a healthy program during pregnancy. Another is to move, move our body. And another is to really use our breath to calm our stress response. And that takes care of a lot of different problems that arise in pregnancy, both the direct stress response and also reducing cravings. So our motto during this class is really mindful eating, move my body, and breathe. You know, that sounds like good advice for anyone, not just for someone who's pregnant. Absolutely. We've taught this class to people struggling with overweight or obesity. And what we find is that it doesn't lead to weight loss very much, not over the typical changes in what we're eating and movement. But the people who learn the mindfulness are then using their awareness, their interoceptive awareness much more. So they're having less binge eating, less periods of of overeating comfort foods. And what that means is that their insulin resistance is much better. It's more sensitive. And so their risk of diseases, diabetes, cardiovascular disease is lower. Even though in our studies, both groups lose weight, we find the health benefits are much more significant in people who are using mindfulness. I hope you'll tell us about the studies, and in particular, the one on long-term effects of a prenatal mindfulness intervention that was published recently. How did the study set up, and what did it show? We spent many years 
refining this mindfulness class for pregnant women and really adapting it for pregnant women so that they could fit it into their life. So we had a class for eight sessions early during pregnancy. And during this class, they learned about eating a more nutritious diet, which was really similar to the Mediterranean diet. And this included eating more real foods, vegetables and lean proteins, and then eating less of the processed foods, especially added sugars. They also had a great time being together and learning this. So there's always this group support component that we think is really magical. It's real glue in, in learning any new skills. What we found was that within a month, the women who were practicing the mindfulness compared to women who were having uh, what we call treatment as usual, which is no special class during pregnancy, they the women who were practicing mindfulness had significant improvements in their levels of glucose. So during pregnancy, women take a glucose tolerance test. They drink a really sweet beverage. And then we take blood and we can see how much their insulin responded. The women in the mindful class had dramatically improved insulin sensitivity and less of the risks that come with pregnancy, the risks for diabetes like impaired glucose tolerance. That sounds terrific. And when I read about the uh, protocol that you used, I read that you also had a class shortly postpartum where these mothers came together with their babies. And I can only imagine that that must have been a very joyful time for all of them. So joyful for each of those classes when it was this reunion and they brought their babies after, you know, months being together and and really wishing each other well with their pregnancy and with their babies there was a lot of laughter and smiles it was very rewarding what was so exciting was that women were reporting the changes in their life and in their nutrition months later so we followed the babies we were very curious about how long these benefits to both the moms health and mental health would last, and the babies. With my collaborator, Nikki Bush, we've followed the babies and the moms for eight years later. This might be one of the longest studies looking at how a plastering pregnancy can help the families. What we found was that, of course, eight weeks after the class, the women who received the mindfulness training had much improvement to health, more mindfulness, more um, vitality, more psychological flexibility. But also their depression was significantly lower. And every year that we measured them for until last year during COVID, we found that their depression remained low. There was a long-term imprint on their mental health and their babies actually had better health starting from the beginning. In that first year of life, they had less doctor's visits, less infections, less of that kind of catch-up growth, that um, excess adiposity that starts to develop. So we, we were very excited to see that we were affecting two generations with this short-term class during pregnancy. Dr. Apple, I can really understand and appreciate how important nutrition is during pregnancy and how mindfulness 
can make a big difference. I, I've got a question about the rest of us. Uh, I, um, I took a mindfulness class just before COVID. And one of my classmates, who is a high-powered medical researcher, um, I ran into this person uh, about six, eight months ago, and she said, are you still doing that mindfulness stuff? I've been so busy. I, I haven't been able to get back into it. And I had to admit that uh, I kind of slipped up too. So I, I guess the question is, for those people who have never taken a mindfulness class or for those people who have and would like to maybe get back into it because, gee, you know, life kind of got in the way and there's so many things and there's stress and boy, that ice cream sundae would be so delicious. How do we all practice mindfulness on a regular basis, especially when we're thinking about comfort food? <laughs> it's a great question. Thinking about comfort food can be a reminder or a trigger for us to do one of these mindful check-ins, to sit back and take some slow breaths and check in with our body. What am I feeling right now? How hungry am I? Do I really need the calories or is this emotional hunger? These mindful check-ins are very powerful. They have been one of the active ingredients in our mindful eating health interventions. But also the beauty is that we can do these for just a few minutes during the day and they have an effect. They actually can shift our mood and our stress arousal in our body within minutes. So one of the tricks that you might try is to tie it something in your day to paperclip it to another habit that you have. And that might be, you know, setting your phone alarm is the, the most direct way to remind yourself, but you might do some mindful breathing right when you wake up or before you go to bed. And those are important times. They set the trajectory of the day. They help release some of the stress of the day right before sleep. So you can have better quality sleep. Or you might do it on the drive. I mean, when we ask people, what's the most stressful thing of your day today? We ask that every day during our studies. And often it's the morning rush and driving and being in traffic. And so we're back to feeling the time scarcity, which is probably one of the most common stresses that we, we share. We, we can really take that seriously and try to... Uh, when we start to feel that we're getting stressed to schedule time in our, in our day, in our routine, to be breaking that up. So it's really like we have a stress habit based on our schedule that, that we can attack and break. Are there specific areas that pregnant women should focus on based on your research? Emotional well-being during pregnancy is so important. It's such a sensitive period. We know it's a critical period for the baby's development, but it's a critical period for the mom as well. And we know that when moms do develop risks during pregnancy, like hypertension, we've followed them over time and they maintain these risks or develop even worse health over the next year. So it's it's a very critical time to calibrate 
both mom's and baby's health. And that's really the work of a family and a community to be supporting pregnant women more and not leave all of the task of wellness to the pregnant woman. So having being able to take antecedent pregnancy leave is really important. Having one's partner have more time as well, time off, paternity leave is also important. We know that stressors during pregnancy have an imprint on health and metabolic health in the ways that we've been talking about. So we just need to really take this period seriously to bolster and support pregnant women. And for pregnant women, really prioritizing mental health. One of the lovely pieces that we included in our class as we were doing mind, short, brief mindful meditations was a loving kindness exercise. And it was a way to help the mom connect with her own body, connect with the baby, as well as connect with those around her. And so this sounds very familiar to people, mm -hmm. but we adapted the loving kindness meditation and it went like this. May I, my baby, and everyone here be safe. May I, my baby, and everyone here be happy. May I, my baby, and everyone here be healthy and strong and live with ease. Dr. Alyssa Apple, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. Thank you so much, Terry and Joe. Thanks for covering this important topic. You've been listening to Dr. Alyssa Apple. She's professor and vice chair in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. Her research aims to elucidate mechanisms of healthy aging and to apply this basic science to scalable interventions to reach vulnerable populations. She's the director of the Aging, Metabolism, and Emotions Center. Her books include The Telomere Effect, a revolutionary approach to living younger, healthier, longer, and her latest, The Stress Prescription, Seven Days to More Joy and Ease. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Liederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial, connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today's show is number 1,334. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you could sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you also get regular access to our weekly podcast, and you can find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. 
but producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.